You're listening to Theology for Teens with Nathan LaValle. Thanks for joining me today. If you're watching on YouTube, you can probably tell I'm in a different place than I normally am. I'm in a car, waiting in the carpool line to pick up my son from school, and I figured I could knock out this podcast while we're waiting. So, today we're talking about the doctrine of Scripture. In fact, the doctrines of Scripture. Last week, we unpacked special revelation, which is the idea that God specially and specifically reveals himself, and he does this in a number of ways, and we covered seven, and the last one was Scripture, or the Bible. And this week, we're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive on the Bible. Now, it shouldn't be too difficult. It shouldn't take too long, but As you leave this podcast episode, you're going to know a lot more about the Bible. I promise you, you will learn something you didn't know unless you are a full-time theologian. So I learned things studying for this. I hope you do too. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow the podcast. Stay up to date with what we're doing. Helps it get in more people's pockets. I'm going to tell you a story. When I was searching for a house in the state that I currently live, I made an offer on a house. My wife and I found one we enjoyed. We thought it would be good. We made an offer. We got it inspected. Everything seemed okay. There were some issues with it, but there were issues we were okay with. And so we asked as a final vetting process for one of our good friends to come out and look at the house. Now, this friend just so happens to build houses for a living and owns lots and lots of properties. So he was someone who we really trusted. We trusted his opinion on these matters. So he came and he looked at the house, he walked around it, and he said, I wouldn't buy this house if I were you. Now, we had already had it inspected. We paid $450 to get someone to come out and look at it. Why wouldn't you buy this house, we say to our friend. And he takes us outside and he shows us. And I'll actually show you a top-down look at this. This is what the house looks like in Google Maps. There were trees all around this house. Some of the trees were actually quite large and they were growing right next to the house. And so our friend said, you see these trees, you see how the roots are going this way? He said, no. Well, look up there. You see how the branches are going that way? That's the way the roots are growing. And all the roots are growing under your house. And I can see in this inspection report that there has been a history of having to fill in the foundation on this house. And this could cause all kinds of problems later, not to mention the fact that a tree could fall on your house because it's going to fall that direction. And so I'm like terrified, right? I'm like, okay, okay, we're not going to buy this house. Here's the thing. When you trust someone, you listen to what they say. Now, this friend wasn't perfectly trustworthy. He wasn't even probably perfectly trustworthy when it comes to finding the correct house to buy. But he was someone that I trusted on this topic. He trusted, uh, I had trust for him more so than I had trust for me in discerning whether or not this house was a good purchase. And so I listened and we pulled out, we lost the $450, we kept looking and we eventually found the right house for us and we're very happy in our house. And so I might just put forward a question to you here, which is this, who is the person that you trust the most in your life? Take a moment to think about that. Who is the person you trust the most in your life? You might have someone that you think about and you're you're putting in your mind. And then I ask you, if they gave you advice, on something you really trusted them about, would you listen to that advice? I think for most of us, we're you know, in a state where we tend to listen to the people who we trust a lot. It's like the story I told. We have someone like this in our life, and when they tell us, don't buy the house, we listen. And they're not even perfectly trustworthy. Now, here's the thing. God is perfectly trustworthy. 
But even more specifically than that, Jesus is perfectly trustworthy. And so if we come to the Gospels merely as historical documents, we're not taking any religious significance, we're just looking at them as documents that come from the first century, we take a look at them and we examine the person, life, work, and resurrection of Jesus. I walk away going, Jesus is perfectly trustworthy, and there's several reasons for this. Jesus lived a morally pure life. Even as he's being antagonized by his enemies, the best claim that they can bring against him is that you claimed to be God. You blaspheme the name of God by saying that you were God. And that's only wrong if you're not indeed God. He may have been indeed God. I also look at his teachings. My favorite is the Sermon on the Mount, but you can also look at the discourse that he has with his disciples before he passes. These teachings are profound. I compare my sermons that I've taught in youth ministry and preaching at churches and teaching at conferences, and my best sermon pales in comparison to Jesus's worst and shortest teaching. Even his smallest parable found in Matthew chapter 13 would be significantly better than my best and longest teaching. The parable of the hidden treasure is, I mean, a wonder. It takes two verses and it expresses a profound concept better than I've ever done. And so I read it and go, this guy's a genius. Now, he also forgave his enemies on the cross. He's hanging there. And I can't even do, you know, a proper service to the extreme pain and the extreme shame of the cross. They put these crosses up next to the road, the place that people traveled along. And it was meant to be a shame thing that made everyone go, don't cross the Roman government. And the Roman government was very good at crucifixion. I mean, I could talk a lot about the medical condition of asphyxiation and how you're almost suffocating on the cross and you'd have to raise and lower and raise and lower. And, and as Jesus is in this state, he looks to the father and he says, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I wouldn't do that if I was in those shoes, if my hands were nailed to that wood, but Jesus did. And that gives me a profound sense of trust in him. And in addition to that, I think about the resurrection and the trustworthiness that I can place in Jesus because he raised from the dead. And we can examine the resurrection in depth and we'll probably do that later because it's worth asking, is this true? The resurrection is probably the most important fact to the reason why I trust Jesus. I've examined the historicity of the resurrection and I've come to the fact that the resurrection theory that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead is the best explanation of the five or six possible explanations. And so Jesus is perfectly trustworthy. Now, when someone is perfectly trustworthy, we should follow their counsel. If Jesus comes and says, I wouldn't buy that house, for example, we should listen, we should back out, we should lose the security deposit, we should be willing to do that. And so if someone's perfectly trustworthy, that means that we have to trust the words that they're saying if we're gonna be rational. Either they're not perfectly trustworthy and we can go at, that's not trustworthy what they're saying, or they're perfectly trustworthy. And that means everything that comes out of their mouth is trustworthy and true. And Jesus himself believed that the Old Testament was the very speech of God. We can look at an example of this. We can look at Matthew chapter 15, verse three. Let me enlarge this for you. If you're on YouTube, you can see it. I'll read it for those who aren't. This is just one of many examples where Jesus does this. He says, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor 
your father and mother. And here he's quoting Exodus 20.12 and Deuteronomy 5.16. So he routinely quotes the Old Testament as though it is the actual speech of Father God. And that's significant. He doesn't come and say the Bible says or the Old Testament says or the law says. I mean, sometimes he says the law says, but oftentimes he says God says this. And so as he quotes the Old Testament scriptures, he believes that they are the authoritative word of God. And so if you're going to trust Jesus, that means you're going to trust his view on the Old Testament, which is that it is true. It's trustworthy. The Jewish view that the, the Old Testament was the inspired scriptures of God is the view that Jesus held. And now when it comes to the New Testament, there's a number of important factors, but the most profound one in my estimation is that the New Testament was written by people who were taught by and directed by Jesus. They were taught by and directed by Jesus. Now, this is significant because as God, and this is, just, this is my belief, we'll get there in a moment, but as, as God was supernaturally going about um, working through the councils that decided what books had been considered canon throughout the early church history. I believe that one of the things, well, and I, I don't just believe, this is well documented, that one of the tests they had for whether a book would make it into the canon of New Testament scripture is whether it had apostolic linkage, which is the idea of, is the author of this book linked to an apostle? We want all the teachings in the New Testament to be linked to an apostle. They also look at dating. They also look at usage within the church. There's a number of criteria they bring. And all of that comes to form you know, a collection of works that are directly linked to Jesus. These are the people who followed him for years and years. And they learn from his teachings. And as Jesus sends them out in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And it's to this group of people he charges this with. And this is the group of people with which the New Testament just leaks out of. Even Paul, one of the prominent authors of the New Testament, encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he spent several years learning from the apostles before he went on to write the letters that we now have in the New Testament. And so if I'm going to believe, if I'm going to believe that Jesus really is trustworthy, that gets me in and of itself to a place of believing that scripture is trustworthy, that the Bible is trustworthy. And I think that's something that not enough people are talking about. If you believe that Jesus is trustworthy, it seems to me that it is most natural then to believe his takes on these things, which is that the New Testament and the Old Testament is trustworthy. Now, there's a number of arguments we could make for the trustworthiness of the New Testament because he didn't quote it in his earthly ministry. It didn't exist then. We can talk about the oppression that the New Testament had and that it survived even in these hostile environments. We can talk about the remarkable consistency between the New Testament and Jesus's teachings itself. But in the end, it's the trustworthiness of Jesus that makes us think that the Bible is inspired. And this is what is called the doctrine of inspiration. This is the idea that scripture itself is the very speech of God. Now, there's a number of means, there's a number of ways by which God accomplishes this. There's a number of ways that he could supernaturally intervene to ensure that what is recorded and canonized in scripture is in fact the speech of God. It could be um, that he is dictating, that dictate theory is happening, that, that God is actually dictating to these individuals the exact wordage. It also could be that he is 
working through other supernatural means of forming their life so that they come to a place where they're going to write the exact words that God intends to be written. But this is the first and most foundational doctrine of Scripture, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, I think a lot of people stop here, and they don't understand that there is actually a full doctrine of Scripture that includes more than just the inspiration. But as I was working on this and thinking about how am I going to explain this to youth, I realized that each of these doctrines are inexplicably, I said that word wrong, inexplicably linked to each other. These doctrines are interconnected. And I think youth really benefit from seeing the connectedness of things. And so I'm going to take you through each of the doctrines of Scripture that I think are completely indisputable, and I'm going to show you how they're linked together. Now, you might disagree. Many people disagree, but these are the ones that I view as completely indisputable. So here we have the minimal facts to reach the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, And this is about the person of Jesus. This is what we've already covered. Now, If you're listening on the podcast, I will tell you that going to YouTube and watching this portion of the video will be helpful because I actually have a graphic that depicts all of these things. I'll also throw a link down in the the show notes that has a link to this image where you can see the way that I've linked these doctrines together. So if you want to click that and continue listening, that'll work as well. So from these minimal facts, we get to the inspiration of Scripture. And this is, again, the thing we just unpacked, that Scripture is the very speech of God. Now, from this, we can derive two things. We can derive that Scripture is truthful. Now, this is predicated on the trustworthiness of Jesus. For right now, that's all we know, that Jesus is trustworthy and that Scripture is the speech of God. And so we get to this and we go, because Jesus is trustworthy, that means that the words he says are true. And that means that if this truly is the speech of God, that that speech is true. Now, this helps us understand the doctrine of God better because now we can understand that all of Scripture is truthful. And so when Scripture says that God cannot lie, this loops back in and authenticates itself. Now, I want to bear in mind, this is not circular reasoning because we didn't start from a circular place. But as we understand the doctrine of inspiration, we're going to understand that all of these doctrines are interconnected and self-authenticating. We can get there from an outside place, but once we make it to the doctrine of inspiration, everything begins to authenticate each other. We can also get to the authority of Scripture just from the inspiration of Scripture and the truthfulness of Scripture. So because Scripture is true, part of the doctrine of God is that God has infinite authority. And if God has infinite authority, then His speech has infinite authority. When something has authority, it rules. Truly inspired Scripture has unlimited authority because God has infinite authority. This means Scripture rules over everything that can be ruled over. And that gets us to the understanding of the necessity of Scripture. If Scripture truly has authority and it can rule over everything that can be ruled over, that means that it is not optional to obey the Bible because everything is subjugated to it. Everything is under its authority. And that gets us to the sufficiency of Scripture. This is another doctrine of Scripture that using only Scripture and logical deductions from Scripture One can know everything that is necessary for human action because every human action should glorify God. The wisdom of Scripture is fully sufficient for the human glorification of God. Now, we talked about this last night. Does that mean that Scripture is going to give you a plan to form your macronutrients to bulk up for football season? No, 
And so it's important to admit that scripture may not be sufficient for everything, but it's sufficient for everything that's necessary. That's an important distinction that I want you to understand. So the truthfulness of scripture branches off and it gets us into kind of a different wing of the doctrine of scripture. We just went down from inspiration and truthfulness, but truthfulness branches off another way. We see 2 Timothy 3.16, like we've talked about of, with the looping, this comes back in and authenticates the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. That word is interesting. I'd love to talk more about that, but we don't have time right now. We also get Matthew 24.35, which is an important passage in the doctrine of Scripture. It says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is Jesus speaking. And so from this verse and the truthfulness of Scripture, we get to the infallibility of Scripture. And in the infallibility of Scripture is the idea that God has and will supernaturally preserve the Bible in order to endure that it will not fail in accomplishing its purpose. So I'll just talk about some practical outcroppings of this. I do not believe that God would allow for every text of Scripture to be destroyed in the world. So, you know, if we come into some kind of apocalypse and all of the internet goes down, we no longer have any digital resources, hard drives are useless, computers don't exist anymore, I don't know, however you need to get there, I do not believe that he would allow for all of the Bibles in the world to burn until, as Jesus says, heaven and earth pass away. So, this is the idea that God is going to ensure that scripture is something that perseveres. Now, this links into the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture, and, and those links are maybe a little bit harder to see, but because Scripture is necessary, that means that it's something that God is going to preserve. And so these things link back into each other. Now, from infallibility, we can get to the idea of the canon of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture. So let's start with canon. The, this idea is that a writing that is truly inspired is the speech of God, and the early church was supernaturally guided to canonize the true canon of written speech of God. So the scriptures are not canon because the early church decided they were canon. It's an important distinction. The scriptures that are canon were canon before they were decided by the early church to be canon. They were the true speech of God before the early church said, this is the true speech of God. It's that the early church correctly identified under the guidance of the Holy Spirit what was in fact the canon of scripture. And God was going to ensure that this happened. This is part of the infallibility of scripture. God would preserve it even in the canonization process. We get to clarity of scripture. The canonized word of God is sufficiently clear to accomplish its purpose. Scripture for this is Isaiah 55, 11. We can take a look at that here. Let me pull this up. So my word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please. This is really important. The clarity of scripture. Now, does that mean that everyone will be able to understand it? No. Does that mean that everything is easy to understand? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that God is going to supernaturally preserve the proper interpretations of scripture so that it accomplishes its purpose. I believe if the entirety of Christianity were to begin to believe that we're saved by works, God would not allow that. He would supernaturally intervene to make sure that scripture didn't just 
persist, but that it was able to be properly understood, that it was sufficiently clear. And this gets us to the interpretation, the actual act of people coming to Scripture and interpreting it. And I believe that this is another thing that's linked into infallibility. This is the process of hearing the speech of God and properly understanding it. And finally, this, along with Matthew 28, 19 through 20, gets us to the translation of Scripture. This is something that's crucial to the Christian faith. And now I'm going to have to try to drive while I finish this. I should have one or two more minutes. This is going to be crazy. Let me put this out. Running a little behind. Okay, this is important. Christianity, right in its DNA, has the idea of its scripture being translated. This is different than in Islam, because in Islam, they actually view translation as being a bad thing. You're not supposed to translate it because it distorts the word of God, and and that is not good. Now, we have to admit that there's some truth to that. When we translate, uh, it's impossible to have a perfect translation. But in the very DNA of Christianity is the idea of translation. Because when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he validates that that is indeed the word of God. Also, in the book of Acts, Peter and the other apostles are given a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, where their speech translates into every single language available. And when God gives the Great Commission, again, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So implicit in that command is the idea that it's possible to do that, which is different than Islam, where Islam is meant to spread by the sword, not through words switching into languages and adequately communicating the concepts of the gospel. So these are the doctrines of scripture. And I'll zoom out here. I was going to fade away a little bit because uh, that's what it does here. But these are the doctrines of scripture that are, um, in my estimation, completely undisputable. If you believe in the inspiration of scripture, it seems to me that you must uh, you must believe all of these doctrines of scripture. Now, I'm considering making a bonus episode this week where we talk about inerrancy because I have some interesting thoughts about the doctrine of inerrancy, and I think it might be something that a lot of youth are curious about. So if you'd like to see that, leave a comment on this video, leave some feedback on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this. I hope this has been helpful in you understanding scripture, the different doctrines associated with it, and the way they connect together. This has been Theology for Teens. Thank you so much for watching. Talk to you in the next one.